Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. We start 2023 with a fantastic guest who was probably one of the journalists closest to our previous Prime Minister, Liz Truss. He is, of course, Harry Cole, the political editor of The Sun and co-author of the biography Out of the Blue, the inside story of the unexpected rise and rapid fall of Liz Truss. Harry has the most extraordinary insights and access to Liz, and the book tracks her life from geeky Lib Dem teenager to Tory MP at the heart of power. I would thoroughly recommend it. It's pretty balanced. A character assassination, it is not. Now, in this episode, which was recorded just before Christmas last year, we discussed the chaos in the Conservative Party, Johnson's downfall, Truss's ascendancy, and what a Sunak premiership might look like, and importantly, what it may mean for investors. Finally, we address the crucial question that is, is the Tory party simply too divided to rule? Now, Harry was a great guest. As always, if you have questions, then do email us at whyinvest.waverton.co.uk. But without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Happy New Year. Harry Cole, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Harry, I want to start, if I can, by going back to January of 2022, which seems like they were happier times. They were sort of simple times when Boris Johnson was prime minister, that Queen Elizabeth II was on the throne, and Liz Truss was a just finding her feet, I suppose, as foreign secretary. What happened? They do seem like simpler times, but actually... It's been a pretty crappy year all in for sort of for the government, really. And January, the seeds of Boris Johnson's um, descent were being quite felt. This is exactly this time last year, so just before Christmas, Partygate had already sort of reared its head. And the initial response to Partygate, which was what actually sort of hung PM in the end, had happened. So he'd come out extremely hard and said what he said about there were no parties and this and that. And so the market would be put down. And I think Tory MPs went away over Christmas. I think it sort of bubbled up. There was a sort of shoot. Boris Johnson's administration went over suddenly and they'd come back after Christmas and sort of hit the ground running and all that would go away. But actually it didn't. It sort of just, it, it was a truce over Christmas and all the problems bubbled up. But then behind the scenes in January, you had this sort of slow drumbeat towards war as well. And actually... You had Boris Johnson, Liz Charles, Ben Wallace, and the Americans you know, working incredibly closely, trying to basically shake the world into waking up. This was happening. Uh, you could make a cynical argument that Boris was, you know, perhaps quick on the off of Nelf on that because he's domestic woes and he saw his opportunities to play the great global system. I think that's probably a bit unfair. I genuinely think that was probably, we'll go down in history as one of the best months, weirdly, of his premiership in the way that the UK was stewarding the Western response. But, you know, that's, Bought in some time, but the fact is, I think if, if a vote of confidence had happened in January about Partygate, Johnson probably would have lost it. And actually, the response to the Ukraine and the situation, the growing realization that, that Putin wasn't bluffing, actually diverted the whole world's attention. So it kind of bought in some time, I guess. And I, yeah. I suppose looking back to that time, 
I suppose hindsight's twenty twenty, but was there a good degree of jostling going on behind the scenes? You know, was this trust jostling? Yeah. I think if Johnson, I think he would have liked to have fired Sunak in, in September twenty twenty one. Obviously, he was the sort of golden boy of the pandemic. He was the guy, Mister Furlough, is what our, our focus groups of our readers refer to him as. You know, he was he'd save the job, he'd spend all the cash, dishy rishy, good looking boy. He'd like to take home and meet a mother. I think he would, he'd like to have fired him and probably would have moved him, but couldn't really. And never actually even seriously considered it. But what he did do is he basically said, in many ways, if you come for me, you're not going to get a clean shot. So he promoted his trust foreign secretary to create a cabinet rival as a sort of warning shot across the bows and ultimately proved correct because when Rishi did come for him, he didn't get a clean shot and it didn't work. Our jostling was there. Trust was certainly by at least sort of January, February, March, you know, taking soundings. Talking to friends, there's a line in, a, in the book about she brings someone in in about February and says, I think I'd be a good prime minister, there's just two problems, I'm weird and I don't have any friends. <laughs> she was, you know, acutely aware of her feelings, as Sunak certainly was, was building together. But also, you had jostling of, of a degree that authorised or otherwise the oncomings of the world and that crowd were actively working against the prime minister at that point. They were openly plotting its direction. So the clock was ticking, so to speak. And so I want to come on to the book. Ooh, that's one of the reasons we're here. Um, out of the blue, the inside story, the unexpected rise and rapid fall of Liz Truss. I want to first ask, when did you finish the book? We started writing on August the 20th and we finished it October the 23rd, which was the Friday after Liz Truss resigned. So... Timing matters. Everyone sort of talked about the fact we kept rewriting the book. We didn't actually ever rewrite it. We changed a few tenses, I suppose. But um, we just kept on going. We went to finish the book with her party conference speech, which then would, in an ideal world, was when the, for her, when the voters would really see her for the first time, she could set her narrative. And in the end, it was, you know, part of the doubt. We just kept on going. We just kept writing. And presumably, I imagine it'll be the, Definitive work on this <laughs> Keir Starmer's not known for his comedy, but I think it was one of the funniest things Keir Starmer has ever said in Parliament, which was one of the PMQs referred to your book. It did, and he said, you know, I gather that there is a book being written about you is out by Christmas, and he was wondering whether or not that was the byline. Yes, indeed. the title. I actually, um, I saw Keir on Monday night, and we um, we took him a signed copy to thank him for his free publicity. <laughs> Uh, you can't buy advertising like that. Let's <laughs> focus on this trust, because actually it is it's an interesting book. But the interesting thing about this, and going back to her time in Greenwich first, then Norfolk, her time as parliamentary undersecretary at the undergoes, then environmental secretary, justice secretary, chief secretary to the Treasury, you know. Every single moment it seemed Liz Trust was out of her depth. Why did no one else see that? I think they did see I wouldn't say out of her depth, but certainly um, the reason I call it the unexpected rise is because although she'd been in the cabinet for a very long time, she never quite made it to the top level of cabinet until 2021. She's sort of been biding her time in the in the sort of outside lane for a while. And her failings were well known. She was most famous for a terrible speech about pork markets and cheese and imports and Actually, remarkably protectionist speech. If you if you think about it, for someone who claims to be a free market libertarian, basically saying we you know we can't eat French cheese, we have to eat Wendley now. This is the site to the parody of Liz Truss because 
she said she pants herself up as a Fremont oh, libertarian. But then also there was a moment where she was um, grandstanding for Confucianist values mm. and the Chinese way of doing things. Yeah. So there was, it felt like a muddle. There's been a remarkable contribution to her career. There's been a streak of, lib- of liberalism and, and liberty that runs through her, but she's also been, you know, when Cameron was on the ascendancy, she was Cameron, when Oswald was in the ascendancy, she was Osborne, least uh, When Boris was on the march, she was more Boris than Boris. And then she ended up being this just. I think what happened was her feelings and her confusion was well known. I think this is more about what the, the state of mind the Tory party was in, that they were able to disregard those during the campaign and project onto her what they thought she was. So the ERG and the Brexiteers thought she was, you know, the zeal of a convert. They enjoyed her enthusiasm for it. They thought she was more Brexit in the end than Rishi. Whereas the free market sort of pro-immigration sort of right wing of the party thought she was a purist and one of them. The left of the party, I, I don't quite know, didn't really back her, but she was able to project to be all things to all people to get enough votes to win, but then obviously if you're all things to all people, it falls apart very quickly because your newfound friends actually aren't that loyal to you, but it's actually the you know, fair weather friends put her in down the street, but when it starts to go wrong, they ran to the hills incredibly quickly. Mm-hmm. Part of the spiral of decline. Well, on the spiral of decline, do you think it was the right policies, wrong moment, or right policies delivered badly? I am an impartial news. The problem was, she was unlucky, first of all, and she was incredibly naive and had a second. The problem was, she sat and watched David Cameron get tempered by the Lib Dem. She sat and watched Theresa May get distracted by everything was consumed by Brexit. She saw Boris consumed by COVID. And, you know, Prime Minister's come in with all these big ideas about what they want to do. And she was determined that, you know, she kept charging around down the street and saying, I've only got two years, I've only got two years. So we wanted to hit the ground running, so to speak. But in doing that, she ignored the major, massive elephant in the room, which was she was borrowing 120 billion already to pay for the energy bailout, which she spent the entire summer telling people she wasn't going to do. And you'd think that in that case, you'd actually limit the scale and ambition of the mini budget and the tax cuts in gender because you could basically say, look, here's all the things I want to do. I've promised to I'm going to you know, reverse corporation tax cut next and things. She probably could have got away with those two. But instead, I think she the, the size and, and scale of the intervention of the energy payout was such an anatomy to her that actually I don't know whether she thought she was going to get out factual or right or whether it was a matter of putting her head on the pillow at the end of the day, thinking, right, I've spent all of this money. Now I want to do the thing I want to do. Without realizing, actually, that was, you know, the mini budget became this sort of Christmas tree and everyone was putting sort of baubles on it. They just, they sort of kept doubling down. And at the same time, then the monarch dies. And again, you take that extraordinary event and you don't use it to go, right, let's slow down. This is a massive moment of upheaval for the country. You know, are we really ready for, you know, she didn't need to do that mini budget. No one doubted her credentials on the tax cuts. And instead of using both of those moments to go, right, Let's calm down, let's slow down, let's, you know, we can do, you know, she tried to do five years worth of reform in five weeks, and it wasn't necessarily the policies that, you know, the city went, it was boring. The other crucial bit is, again, political naivety of rates were going up that week, everyone knew it, and they were slow to react. The Yanks had done it in the weeks and months before. It was so obvious there was going to be a rate rise that week. There's no need to do the mini budget before now. It's just let Bailey put the rates up, own the decision. And instead, what did Bloomberg call it? It's now the Tory idiot premium on your mortgages. Because, um, 
you know, it's politically naive to fund that decision because now everyone is associating, incorrectly, I would say, associating the rates rise and the extra payments every month of, you know, 30 million homeowners with the mini budget. And it's just, it's just unnecessarily stupid. Changing the solid policies have been, have been kind of shot out. They're kind of toxic now. Yeah. I feel Biden was fascinating during the midterms a couple of weeks later when he basically turned trust into a sort of bogeyman for tax cuts and would say basically that the Republicans do with his trust. Mm. Yeah. I think the mini budget probably has set the free market agenda back, you know, decades. Is that we get to back on a president of America? Yes. Exactly. Talking to us. Yes. About federal dollars. Exactly. One main also is that, you know, she was right in her, in her analysis, even as she says up in Spatchbox, and Hunt says the same, she's right in her analysis of the situation, the tax burden is too high. But look at how George Osborne, when he took 50p down to 45, he spent months rolling the pitch. He had, you know, private members' bills from backbenchers calling for it. He had the TPA rolling the pitch for weeks. He had months and months of newspaper columnists saying this is the right thing to do. It's a toxic trap set by Gordon Brown. And... She didn't even tell the cabinet she was going to try and do it. They didn't want it to leak. All the things in the budget to leak, that's the money leak. So at least people would literally draw their breath when they hear you say the So let's just go back then briefly to Boris Johnson. And it felt like said his hands were tied after party days. If he had just come out and said, look, we're really sorry. If he had come out early and said, look, we're really sorry. This was a, a work event. There is this blurred line in Downing Street between home and work, we're sorry. Could he have survived? Yeah, I think he would have had a rough couple of weeks, sure. But yes, I think the problem was is that there were three points in 2021 where he basically said, all right, I've cocked up. I'm sorry, I could change. So in February, he replaced his team. And this was meant to be the sort of, you know, yeah, the, the sort of almost sort of wartime conciliaries mm-hmm. coming in. And I would say they actually, if anything, exasperated the client of Boris Johnson probably to a three or four hold in the fact that he was given a second chance. He was given a second chance, a third chance, you could argue, by the party, by the MPs, by the cabinet. And he fussed it. You know, exactly the same problems with the Chris Pincher thing, which was your initial reaction is to not check the facts and just deny it. And then deny it really hard and go on the attack. But actually, if it waited 24 hours, established the facts before responding, or just fired the guy, for Christ's sake, like quickly, it was the catalyst, it was the spark that exposed once again that even after party gate, after he said he was going to change, sort his team out and do it, is that realisation that it was never going to happen. And I think that's when he lost the, the more moderate sort of sensible, I'm loath to use the word, but the sort of party deep state, you know. That's when they all went, oh, you know what? This is not going to change. Where do you think the future holds up for, for Boris Johnson? I mean, there's no question that he's signaled the comeback. If he carries on the rate he's going, he's going to have, you know, 20-odd million in the bank by next year. You might be able to afford to his murder. Well, that's the thing. I think it's the details of his extensive family commitments are widely known. So he does need to make some longer. And I think that was, you know, I personally think that comeback attempt, if it had been next spring, if it had been on the eve of an election, would have been more successful. Um, I just think really was his heart in it. And because of the party gate inquiry, you know, the problem is he wasn't, he hadn't wriggled free of the trap yet. So, but, you know, if Rishi wins the next election and there's a you know, steep and narrow path to that, but it's very steep and very narrow. If he was there, it's his party. So that's five years that Boris saying going to get a look in. And if he loses the election, you know, is he going to be the hard yarns of five years in opposition? I don't think so. So really, 
Is he going to be there for you know, in five years' time? You know, who knows? Look where we are in a year. Look where we are in two years. Look at what the political climate was like three years ago. Never say never, but not anytime soon. Yeah, well, let's turn to Dishy Rishi and look forward perhaps to 2023. Because I know that a lot of our clients will be agonizing over this. What do you think a Rishi administration looks like? Or is Rishi Cabinet? All hail our new technocratic ocean world. <laughs> it's frankly the three months ain't angry been, been quite nice. Um, it's remarkable how quiet it's been. Yes, so they very deliberately have done that after the chaos and the madness. They came in and, you know, we were sort of taken aside and, and told slightly in, you know, no uncertain terms the dampeners are on. And he has a sort of almost Gordon Brown-esque desire to be in control of all of the details. So he's wrestled various things off of various departments and is running them all out of Downing Street. But I think he's going to pick a few fights. He has to, yeah. Then he has to pick a few fights. He's going to pick a fight with Sturgeon. He's going to pick a fight with the unions, uh, which is what he's sort of doing. And he's got to sort the boats out because, frankly, there is no finer, you know, visual representation of government failure than what's going on in how and over. So he's put a massive one on his back, but he's going to say, you know, abolish them or get rid of the asylum backlog of around 91,000 by this time next year, so Christmas 23, and you're on to the eve of election year, so you better bloody do it, because otherwise he has literally missed the most obvious target you got going right on the cusp of election, and I think we will remember that. So he's had to do something. He's very deliberately been very, very quiet over the last month. But I think people are quite impressed, actually, Tory MPs, that he hasn't folded on the strikes. In fact, actually... The right of the party, who were very, very sniffy of him and very suspicious of him, were actually quite impressed that he's holding out. He can imagine Boris flipping, you know, U-turning on the, on the nurses pretty quick. And, um, the rail workers, Mick Lynch is the perfect, you know, almost comedy tabloid baddie for him to have the Richard. Exactly. If he didn't exist, they would have invented it. Um, so I think Sturgeon, he needs to sort of not put back in the box as such, but. She's not going to get the referendum, but she's also not going away. So I think there's going to be quite a big old fight coming with her in the new year. So he's teeing up to big set pieces, which you do in the year, you know, the 18 months into election. You need some great defining battles, but he's being very tactical in which ones he's choosing. And you have defined battles that is looking very much outside his party. Are there some battles that need to be fought inside the party? And maybe the question is, Harry Cole, is the Conservative Party governable? One of the most compelling arguments for the first past the post in our electoral system now is that they create stable governments. In Belgium, they negotiate the coalition after the election. Weirdly, the Conservative Party sort of negotiate the coalition internally themselves. But you've got essentially four or five different parties now within a party. On the, on the left, you've got the, the sort of big spending, big hearted, Quite a large Catholic part of that you know, tradition in the in the party, the sort of DWP that's raised benefits by ten percent and not for workers mould. You've got the, the sort of Bovite Blairite public sector reformers, you know, who really have been in any party, you know, frankly, of the centre. On the right, you've got the Brexiteers, the hardline anti-immigration right. You've got the Liz Trussie free market pro-immigration right. You know, they were allies over Brexit, and Brexit actually masked a lot of issues within the party when it was much easier when it was leave versus remain and it was much easier when it was eurosceptic versus europhile but underneath because it probably split down the left and right of the party but underneath the surface actually there were lots of factions within that and now the brexit sort of plaster has been ripped off 
those factional differences are a lot more able to bear. And CDC majority ain't what it used to be. And all the things that the government needs to do to get growth going, they don't have majority for. So house building, 1%, you know, 100,000 houses a year, 1% GDP growth. So, you know, the target meant to be 300,000. That would be 3% growth, which we sorely really need right now. Can't go through the party. Immigration, you know, you could argue, but you could do it to any player. You know, throw open the borders, get actually fake GDP growth through because it's it's expanding the the, the population rather than expanding the wealth. It's, you know, there's more people coming in, spending money, shots and visioning. So then, which underpins quite a lot of central bank, monetary, large ass, and no majority. So they're trying to pull all these levers to get things going. And actually, I mean, I, I make the case at the end of the book, actually, replacing this trust doesn't make that problem go away. Replacing Boris Johnson hasn't made that problem go away. The leadership of the party, if they carry on like this, I think the voters would probably rather they had this row in the semi-privacy of opposition. So I'm going to finish with a couple of final questions. Most controversial prediction of 2023. Well, stopped. I said I wasn't going to make any predictions. Sorry. Something's going to happen to Keir Starmer. Something, something, he's, going to have a, he's going to have a wobble, but he'll feel, I think he'll survive it. But something will happen. I mean, he's at the moment, he's walking across the, um, the sort of minefield with the Ming Vars. And instead of where Blair used that 50 point poll lead, whatever he's got, to go further and drag the party further to the centre, whereas Keir appears to be using the 50, but doing it, nothing that risks the poll lead by doing anything very controversial. I think he'll pull a lever and it won't work and something will happen. I don't know what it is yet. If Liz Truss writes an autobiography, who's it going to be called? Why I was right about everything and the party wasn't ready for it. <laughs> that was very good. And what advice would you give to our younger listeners who are trying to forge a career in journalism? And what skills do you think that they need to equip themselves with? Just keep writing. Just keep finding stories and breaking stories in whatever way possible. Flogging them to newspapers, set up a blog, tweet them, whatever. Don't waste your time on journalism courses and, and the like. Uh, you know, if you've got the bug and if you've got the skill and the natural skill set for it, all that can wait. But yeah, kick indoors basically. And if you can't find a job, create your own. That's the beauty of content is content is king. So you're only as good as your last story and just keep writing. Just keep writing. Harry Cole, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Wine Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week. Harry Cole, the political editor of The Sun. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like us, subscribe to us and let your friends and colleagues know. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.